0: A podcast from Premier Unbelievable.
1: Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Matters of Life and Death. Um, As always, I'm Tim White and I'm joined as ever by my dad, John White.
2: Hi, Dad. Hi, Tim. Hi, Tim.
1: So today we're going to do another one of our quick fire Q and a episode with some questions from you guys. Thanks as always for sending those in. Um, uh, we really enjoy hearing what you're thinking about and giving us lots of interesting uh, stuff to, to discuss. Um, so as always, you can, you can email us by uh, emailing molad, M O L A D at uk, Or if you're a social media person, you can tweet me or X me, whatever it's called these days um, <laughs> at, T.S. Wyatt, W-Y-A-T-T. Our first question today, Dad, comes from someone called Stephen, um, and he's responding to our recent uh, episode about evolution. Um, And he says, while I would agree with you both on favoring a guided creation, I'm currently studying at a a world-class science university, shall we say, uh, and um, in the Christian Union there have many friends who do, do actually believe in the literal six days uh, creation present in Genesis. Um, they are obviously people who striving to work and embrace and continue scientific theory, but they defend their position by saying that God is powerful enough to have created a supposedly old world in six days. And so that uh, God did create, as Genesis says, but then placed into creation fossils and carbon decay and the light of distant galaxies and everything else to give the appearance of an old world and universe. Uh, this view doesn't sit entirely well with me because it gives the impression of a misleading creator. But I'd be very interested to hear your thoughts on this.
2: Yeah, fascinating stuff. And, uh, you know, I, I'm aware of the fact that uh, this is often called young earth creationism. And it was one of the things we did talk about in our podcast, the the idea that uh, taking a very literalistic uh, timing of the dates in Genesis, you can calculate that the creation happened a matter of thousands of years before Christ, and that, um, and therefore, uh, all the um, scientific evidence of an old uh, Earth and the age of the universe and so on—all this is incredibly wrong, at orders of magnitude wrong. And, and we talked about this before, haven't we? That the problem with that position is that it basically says that the entire foundation of modern science uh is is based on a hideous hideous failures and and mistakes um and that therefore um the obvious implication of that is that is that all science that is based on this fundamental physics is uh completely unreliable and And yet, you know, that's the science which underpins absolutely everything that we're using all the time. It certainly underpins the internet that we're communicating with at the moment, the computers we're using. And um, it underpins the use of the the mobile phones and GPS and everything else, which are all constantly testing the laws of physics, um, which are based on quantum physics, on general relativity and and so on. So... um, i i I think that it it's very hard to accept that modern science is so completely and utterly mistaken and fooled, is it possible that that god um is working in this way well well if if you take the the orthodox understanding Christian understanding of science, which is one that I have completely uh accept and have reflected about and taught and and that is the idea that that science is a way of following god's own thinking of that that what the what the research scientist is doing as they investigate the structures of of, of the world of the cosmos of the universe is they are, in kepler's famous phrase phrase they are thinking god's thoughts after them that, that we are in other words it wasn't einstein that invented the general Laws of relativity, the way that science that space curves around uh, massive objects. It was God who who wrote those laws, but Einstein's mind, astonishingly, was able to work them out. And there's a famous quote, I think it's from Einstein that says that the most mysterious thing about the universe is its comprehensibility. In other words, why on earth can a pathetic little carbon-based life form? Um, and the pathetic little brain that evolved according to naturalistic evolution theories, you know, our brains, our central nervous systems evolved in order just to help us find berries hmm. on the African savannah and ways of getting away from saber toothed tigers. And hmm. actually I'm not sure there were saber toothed tigers on the African <laughs> savannah, <but> you know, <laughs> you, I you take get, your point. You take the point. Um, but why on earth should that pathetic little central nervous system be able to do things like write symphonies uh, and do all the astonishing things that the human brain can do, but then in particular understand the fundamental laws by which the cosmos hmm. is developed but of course, from a Christian point of view, if we are made in God's image then there is it's it's understandable that there's some kind of homology between the human mind and the divine mind the creator's mind we're able to follow the divine reasoning the divine logic the divine physics so to me that makes total sense and and you know working as a research scientist i had a real thrill about the idea that i was trying to think god's thoughts about protecting babies brains uh, after him uh, that god had locked into the into the creation uh, pr- protective mechanisms and so on
1: I guess to to flesh out the question then, what about, because I agree, the only way you can really credibly kind of believe in contemporary science um, and also want to hold to a literalistic understanding of Genesis is that um, God has... Uh, built into the world the appearance and the uh you know the constants and all the forces and everything that point towards a billions of year old earth but actually secretly made it in six days you know and so when he created the world he he made it with all the universe all the the various galaxies drifting apart from each other at a constant rate which you know we can we can wind the clock back to a big bang but actually they were actually created millions of light years apart and you know all that kind of stuff like in theory yes i believe god could do do that if he wanted to but what it has never made sense to me is why he would he would seek to deliberately and inexplicably mislead people and bake into his creation evidence millions of pieces of evidence that point to the world working one way when he actually did it another way you know it's a neat way of resolving the issue if you are a, a young christian evangelical scientist who wants to maintain what they were told at church and what they're learning in the lab but actually, if you look at it from God's perspective, it's absolutely bizarre. If you've already decided you're going to make the universe in six days, um, why would you then bother to go to enormous lengths to obscure this fact from your image bearers and insert kind of mind-bogglingly complex levels of subterfuge into the very fabric of created order affecting every single atom and electron just to fool people so that they, when they started to learn how to do science in a few thousand years they would come to the wrong conclusion it just it just makes why would god be care if we if unless he was setting up some gigantic test of faith it just doesn't really um seem to make any sense to me exactly so that it it does fundamentally question
2: the character of god because yeah. instead of in the orthodox understanding god deliberately enabling human beings supporting and encouraging human beings to understand the way the world is made what what is being proposed is that god deliberately designs the cosmos as in to be intensely deceptive mm. intentionally deceptive um, and therefore fools not only uh, all these atheistic disbelieving scientists but also mm. manages to fool the vast majority of his followers and believers who are, are in all conscience trying to understand the universe so, so he he sets out to deceive uh, vast numbers of uh, of uh, of his followers um and that seems to be so so egregious a way of understanding the character mm-hmm. of god and so flying in the face of everything that the that the christian faith reveals about the character mm-hmm. and nature And the faithfulness of God, one of the things that one of the wonderful attributes of God um, is um, described in the Old Testament by the Hebrew word emet, which is usually translated faithfulness. Uh, Interestingly, I've only recently understood that it it actually means much more. It means trustworthiness. It means that everything that God does and says is utterly truthful, utterly trustworthy. Utterly to be relied on, and yet, what's being proposed here is actually God is anything but trustworthy. God is, God is 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 using His uh, power in order to deceive and uh, and mislead, and and
1: it just seems it, it's impossible to me to worship a God like that, hmm. particularly a God who ultimately wants to be known and to be loved and to be in communion with us so much that he sends his own son at unbelievable cost to to build a bridge to us you know this is a god who longs who who grieves at the, the separation and the distance that exists between his people and himself and why on earth would he seek to further that by engaging on this colossal deception and ultimately casting huge doubt on the truthfulness of scripture you know in that i and you agree that there is no contradiction whatsoever between genesis and and science but actually, a lot of Christians do wrestle with that subject, as we talked about in this evolu- evolution episode. And, and there's been a lot of, you know, uh, a lot of uh, angst has gone in trying to understand how those two books of science and faith and scripture can be read together. And if God actually did make the world in six days, it would be great. The obvious thing would be to make that really obvious so that people could say, oh, my gosh, this Genesis account is incredibly unerringly scientifically accurate. What a wonderful affirmation of the reality of God's existence! But
2: I think so, and and it does it does just reflect a kind of to me almost a kind of desperation to yeah. try to to cling to a particular interpretation of 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 the Bible, which which in itself is very hard to um, to reconcile with all we know about way the scriptures were written about the the meanings of the original authors and so on uh, so this young earth theory i think most thinkers see as a product mainly of the enlightenment or of the or the pre-enlightenment it was the rise of the scientific method with people like galileo and newton and so on and the obvious thing was, well, why don't we apply this same mechanistic scientific method to understanding Genesis? Mm.
0: Uh,
2: and, and actually, that was a that was a pretty new idea. Uh, yeah. Certainly, previous Bible readers and commentators had had not thought along those lines. So, I think many people think see new Earth creationism, young Earth creationism, as 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 the outworking of a scientific mechanism mechanistic way of thinking which is then applied
1: inappropriately to the scriptures yeah and it's certainly i think surprised surprise to some people to discover that actually people often assume that you know christians until darwin all believed in a literalistic kind of mechanistic interpretation of genesis 1 and 2 six days and 4000 and uh, sorry six days and 6000 years old etc but actually if you look at the patristics and the ancient church fathers there was a huge diversity of beliefs about what happened you know and augustine for example believed in an instantaneous creation and there's been a long as you say long traditions of reading genesis in poetic and various other ways and actually in many ways it's a reaction against during the victorian era and the early 20th century kind of the the kind of creationism movement emerges as a reaction against um uh this kind of hateful new science coming out of Victorian Britain, and Britain and particularly grows stronger in, in in America after things like the Scopes Monkey Trials in the 1920s and, and that kind of thing. And actually, it's often presented as this is just a basic reading of Genesis. This is what Christians have always thought. But actually, historically, if you look at church history, it's quite a modern, uh, innovative way of trying to understand science in Genesis.
2: I think that's right. Um, you know, I, and I don't want to caricature um sincere believers and you know it, it's quite likely that some people listening to this podcast would still want to say well hang on a minute what about and what if and mm. all the rest. And I understand that. I, I, I don't, you know, I I think we want to encourage dialogue, understanding yeah. and so on. But but in the end it seems to me that the evidence very strongly stacks up. Um and, and the truthfulness and the trustworthiness of God points towards the trustworthiness of science.
0: Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time and some of Tom Wright's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help us keep these resources and podcasts like Ask NT Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong, because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus's Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash matters of life and death. That's premierinsight.org forward slash matters of life and death. Thank you. Listening to matters of life and death a podcast from premier unbelievable
1: Shall we move on to a second question quickly um, this is from annabelle um, and uh, she sent this in a few weeks ago responding i think to our episode about, um, I think about uh, dementia, where we talked a little bit about philosophy and autonomy and things like that. And she says this, your recent comment about philosophers caught me by surprise as I have a wonderful Christian friend, theologian and philosopher. I'm also currently reading Nick Spence's new book, the history of science and religion and the role of philosophers seems so central. Perhaps they might contribute more than just sitting and thinking.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And and, I, I, I do recall the conversation about philosophers and um, I I think I certainly don't want to imply that uh, philosophers haven't made great contributions in the area of um, thought generally and and including in the areas of theology and so on. Um, But I I do maintain my, my view that actually there are besetting sins and blind spots of philosophers um and and i you know uh, as we said before in order to practice philosophy uh, certainly as a professional philosophy you have to be a pretty weird kind of person and and you know if you look at the history of philosophy and and you look at uh you know the outstanding thinkers and philosophers over the years they are by no means you know ordinary people people with ordinary life experiences and in particular you know philosophers do tend to sit on their backsides and view that they the main way to understand the world is by is by thinking about it whereas the rest of humankind it engaged in active work and life you know life wisdom tends to come not from sitting on your backside and reflecting it comes from life experience and and i i think that um the blind spots of philosophers have led us down some some uh dark and blind alleys alleys and I think one of the recent things that's happened is to start to hear the voices of other people, like, for instance, the voices of disabled people, uh, the voices of people with different perspectives, the voices of women, the voices of people who don't come from uh, a privileged, elite, male, Western background and so on. We've got a great deal to learn by by listening to other voices, um, whilst respecting the fact that there have been remarkable contributions made by philosophers I don't know what do you think I mean you know what how do you rate philosophers uh in as people that you would turn to
1: I think it's a really interesting question I think I have a slightly different perspective on you I think I'm slightly less critical of the discipline or those who practice it I think we need to acknowledge that um you know a lot of What we think about philosophy today is often, you know, the kind of, you know, contemporary academic philosophers um, who I think, you know, many of whom do interesting things and think interesting thoughts. But ultimately, actually, I think we need to look at the long span. You know, I did a, a really fascinating module in my history degree, which actually involved looking at a whole series of the kind of foundations of Western political thought going back all the way to Aristotle, Plato in ancient Greece and tracking that through to the 20th century through a kind of a a hit list of the kind of 10, 15 or so kind of most prominent thinkers. And it was really interesting because um, actually you realise a lot of what underpins our culture, our society, our institutions, our constitution has fundamentally grown and evolved over years from thoughts that a philosopher sitting in a room somewhere reading books had and wrote down. And I think it's easy to look at contemporary philosophy you know, and say, well, what is that person adding to society? This is just kind of ivory tower, navel-gazing nonsense, you know, particularly I think some of the twentieth, 20th, late 20th century kind of where philosophy got quite absurd or nihilistic or kind of abstract. But actually you can't, you know, Western liberal democracy rests on insights that philosophers like Locke, um, Locke and Hobbes, Machiavelli, you know, Rousseau, um, Thomas More, people who, 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 you know, yes, they're all white, privileged, elite men, and I'll come on to that. But actually, we wouldn't have the society we have today without some of the insights and some of the culture and institutions that were built on a bedrock of ideas. And I think fundamentally I'm a humanities person I'm not a scientist and I believe in the power of ideas I believe in the power of the written word and of books and of the value of kind of sitting and thinking and writing and so I'm a little reluctant to kind of junk the entire discipline and say what we need is you know more practitioners and doers Um, however all of that said I agree with a lot of your critique that philosophy has often been an incredibly kind of narrow profession and that it is in desperate need. As frankly would so would be professional history or sociology or a lot of these humanities disciplines is in desperate need of being grounded in 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 a much more diverse range of people doing it. You know, more women, uh, more ethnic minorities, more people from from lower social classes, uh, disabled people, whatever. You know, it is not healthy for an entire kind of intellectual firmament to be built up by people representing an incredibly kind of narrow cast of the of the societies they're thinking for but i do believe there is value and merit in the idea of a discipline which says let's think deeply about the world and try and draw conclusions and, and bat ideas around yeah
2: and i and i totally agree and you know and i i'm fascinated by the history of philosophy and, and continue to read it but you know there are certain things which strike me one of the things which strike me is that ever since plato philosophers have been spending countless hours thinking about what it means to be human. I mean, about anthropology, you know, the nature of of the human experience and so on. And, you know, they've they've focused on things like rationality and truth seeking and the image of God, you know, Christian philosophers have, have, have gone about that. And utterly astonishingly, in the history of philosophy, uh, it appears that virtually nobody has ever really thought seriously about the the reality that human beings are dependent organisms who come into this world utterly and totally dependent on the love and care of others and who live every, almost every minute of their lives in dependence on other people as being a fundamental defining property of what it means to be human. And if you think about it, well, why didn't they ever think that? Well, answer, I'm not dependent. I I, I sit on my... In my sofa and, and food appears uh, and uh, you know I, I'm cared for and looked after, and people do my washing and uh, remove my uh, excreta and, and provide me with with water and 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 it just happens, so I don't need to think about it. it's invisible, it's not it's not part of being human and it's only Alistair McIntyre, world-class philosopher who writes a book called Dependent Rational Animals, where for the first time a philosopher actually writes a whole book about how dependence is a fundamental feature of being human. You know, and and he's a late 20th century philosopher after two millennia or more since, since Plato. And yet, you know, if you'd gone to any mother with a newborn baby and said, what strikes you about about being human, you know, just tell us what you think about it means to be human. You know, any mother would say, you know the thing that strikes me, how utterly and totally dependent it means to be a human baby. So in other words, you know, why did that whole aspect of being human was completely uh, ignored as being irrelevant uh, by philosophers? And I think you could point to many other blind spots. Not That's not to decry the value of what they did achieve. It's just to point out that they were capable of extraordinary blind spots, which ordinary human beings living ordinary human lives would have
1: told them in a, in an, in a blink of an eye. Hmm. Yeah, I agree with all of that. I guess my my thought would be in response to the question, the answer is not do we need less philosophers, but I would say the answer is we need more philosophers. We need more. We need to broaden the pool. We need to broaden the intellectual soil that they're working from, we don't want to say, you know, get out of your ivory tower and come and do a real job. We want to invite more people up the ivory tower, so that the philosophy that is produced by the discipline and by the academics and by the the people who devote their life to this kind of weighty thinking is of greater value and is more grounded in the reality of human beings and life as it truly is right let's call it quits there um thanks so much for listening everyone um uh, as always um we'd love to hear more of your questions more of your disagreements um it's really helpful for us to hear wh- where we've got our own blind spots which i'm sure are legion <laughs> no there uh, is the thought <laughs> uh so do get in touch with us you can email molad m-o-l-a-d at premier.org.uk you can tweet me on twitter uh, at t-s wyatt um and do go to dad's website johnwhite.com for plenty more things to stimulate your own thinking Um, even some engagement with philosophy I'm led to believe in a few of the few of his articles Um, but thanks for listening we'll be back next week with another episode Uh, until then bye-bye